You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. All right. Well, good morning, Northway family. Doing all right? Oh, come on now. This ain't the decaf service, y'all. Come on. Everybody all right? Good to see you. Glad you're with us this morning. If you got a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Continuing on in our study in the book of Romans, taking this diamond called the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, every sermon, every chapter, every section of scripture is just showing us a different facet of this thing that we call the good news that is in Jesus Christ. And I got to tell you, as we dive into this week's text, um, one of the privileges that I've had as a pastor for the last 20, 25 years of vocational ministry is the opportunity to both identify, recruit, and train up future leaders within the church. And so whether that's starting in membership classes or whether it's pipelines that we have of leadership development or residencies or internships or whatever it may be in whatever gospel communities folks get plugged in, I get the opportunity to hear stories. And one of the questions I almost always ask is, hey, tell me your salvation story. Tell me your journey of faith and really how the good news of Jesus Christ has been applied to your life. In other words, how were you saved? And one of the things that has absolutely fascinated me um, over the last 20 plus years is the variety of responses that I can tend to get to that question of how were you saved? And what I have found is that for many well-meaning, professing Christians, uh, uh, outside of owning what is the only genuine biblical response of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone, I tend to see a myriad of other responses, certain appeals that people will make other than faith alone in Jesus Christ. And there's four almost classic appeals that I've heard over the years that folks can run to if we're not careful. One of those is an appeal to Christian heritage. When I ask the question, how are you saved? Um, Tell me about that story. Almost initially will come out, well, I grew up in a Christian home or I grew up in a Christian school. And so, yeah, I was surrounded by the Christian faith. And that's kind of the response in and of itself that I'll get to which I almost always reply, hey, that's fantastic. I'm so glad that you did. But understand, I also grew up eating at the McDonald's on the corner of 75 and Campbell. And that never made me a Big Mac just because I ate there. Like you don't come to faith in Christ by osmosis. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's simply that you grew up in a Christian home. Your Christian home did not save you. Jesus has to save you. And so that's one of the appeals we can see. There's a second classic appeal, though, and it's that of behavior modification. And it kind of goes like this. Hey, how are you saved? Well, listen, I used to smoke weed. I used to cuss. I used to sleep around. I used to get hammered at parties. I used to do all these things, but I don't anymore. And to which, again, I go, man, that's fantastic. That is a great transformation that's happened in your life. But you need to know this. One of my good friends up in Denton is an atheist, and he has the exact same story. He can tell you about what he used to do and what he doesn't do anymore, and he has no claim on Jesus at all. And so just because you've made some changes and modifications in your behavior, that does not equal your salvation. It may demonstrate some byproducts of your salvation, but that is not your salvation. And so that's one of the other claims. The third claim that I hear quite a bit goes kind of hand in hand with behavior modification, but it's that of comparative righteousness that I'm simply going to justify myself based upon what I haven't done that you've done. And so it kind of goes like this. Well, you know, I haven't, I haven't lied as much as that person. Well, I've never killed anybody. There's people out there that have done that stuff, you know, or, or I'm not as bad as somebody. I mean, we kind of are building this 
This argument of our own merit based upon what we have done or not done that somebody else has done or not done. It's this comparative righteousness. What we've already seen from Romans 1 forward is that we cannot measure our righteousness horizontally against other people's righteousness because guaranteed you're always going to find somebody out there worse than you that's going to make you feel more merited based upon that. The The righteousness we're comparing to is vertically with us to God. And when you look at God's righteousness, which is the perfect standard, and then you look at your own, we have all fallen short. So that cannot be an appeal. But then there's a fourth appeal that I hear quite often, and it's the one that we're going to see in this text this week. And it's the appeal to ceremonial tradition. In other words, when I go, hey, tell me about how you were saved. And he goes, well... I attended a confirmation class when I was nine. I was baptized in the Methodist church when I was five. I I was christened and sprinkled at birth. I I took my first communion at 12. I I, uh, regularly go to confession and attend mass, and and I joined as a member in 02, and, and we appeal to these ceremonial rites of passages as our salvation. And those indeed may be great evidences of your salvation, but they are not your salvation. The truth is none of those things are what the Bible says actually saves a human being or provides them the righteousness that they need. None of those things are an appeal to the true good news that is in Jesus Christ that God has given his son who had perfectly merited the righteousness that you cannot. And he, by faith in him, he gives you that righteousness through his sufficient work on the cross, where he appeases the just wrath of God by taking the penalty that your sin deserves. And you, by believing in him, that righteousness of Christ is transferred by grace to your account. None of those things appeal to that good news, that gospel. And in fact, everything that I just walked through, they are mere human behaviors or ceremonial rites of passage that produce, unfortunately, a false security in a number of us that believe because we have undergone those things, that's why we're saved. And the crazy thing is most of that that I hear is not from baby Christians who just haven't learned to articulate the gospel well. It's from many folks who have been steeped in church for years, and they have simply learned to put on the Christian veneer or the Christian clothing of Christianity without really ever embracing the power of Jesus Christ on the cross and transfer of trust to him. Now, this is exactly what we're going to see in Romans 4 today that Paul is going to make an appeal towards. For the Jew in Paul's day, the most common appeal that a Jew can make concerning what it is that assured their salvation was that of circumcision. It was held in Israel in Paul's day that a Jew might not be as good as he should be, but he would never be condemned by God as long as he bore the sign of the covenant, which was that of circumcision. Now, what is circumcision? Of course, circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh, of the foreskin, of the male anatomy. That was ordained by God in Genesis chapter 17 for every Jewish boy on the eighth day of his life. And that flesh being taken away was a physical sign 
for the Jew that you were of the commonwealth of the people of God. That young boy was entering into the promises of God's covenant. And eventually that boy, as the future head of his home, that physical sign would be applied spiritually to his wife and his children. And over time, though, the narrative began to evolve in Israel in the belief that it was that physical act itself that saved you and served as your assurance from God that you were his. And it was never meant to be that way. Even the prophets would rise up and and rebuke the people of God saying, what you really need is a circumcision of the heart. It's the flesh around your heart that needs to be removed so that you can believe by faith rather than putting your trust in these physical acts and living in hypocrisy to them. And and the, the prophets, as they rebuked the people, the people killed the prophets for doing so, for saying so. And so in the spirit of those prophets, the apostle Paul is going to step up today. And he's going to lay out a case here through Abraham for why it is the physical acts of ceremonial tradition do not save you. And he's going to say for the Jew, the physical act of circumcision is useless if it is not preceded by an internal reality of trust known as faith in the promise of God. If that isn't present, then the physical act means nothing. And then likewise to a Gentile, even if you never were circumcised, as long as your faith is in the promise of God, you can call yourself a son or a daughter of Abraham because you're walking in his footsteps of faith and you can be saved apart from circumcision. Let me ask you something. Is this a significant needed message today? Even though we live in an ever-progressing society where we are distancing ourselves more and more from those old school traditions of the South that, man, I grew up this way. You're seeing more and more people grow up not that way, where they can't make those appeals to heritage and other things. The truth is there is still a vast majority of people on this planet that are still clinging to ceremonial tradition for their salvation. If you were to take this message today and you were going to certain parts of the Russian Orthodox Church or even the Eastern Orthodox Church in some places or go into Vatican City in Rome or go into Mexico City or just go down the street here in Dallas and you go into those places and you herald the fact that, listen, your Eucharist earns you no merit before God. Your baptism earns you no merit before God. That your priest mediating for you offers you nothing. That what is needed from you is faith and the promise of God through Jesus Christ and his substitutionary work on the cross alone, of which those things are maybe meant to reflect, but they themselves cannot save you and mean nothing apart from faith. You think that's going to be a popular message? Oh no, you're going to pick a fight right there. Because the truth is there are millions of people across the world today who are living with a false sense of security that those things have saved them. Men, women, and children who believe they have a free hall pass into heaven simply because they were dunked, sprinkled, or went through some ceremonial ordinance in the church at a young age. And again, those things may evidence salvation, but they do not equate salvation, as we will see today. And y'all, this is a big deal. Not only is this preached in the Old Testament, Jesus is going to preach it in the Sermon on the Mount. The book of Hebrews is going to orient itself around it. Most of Paul's letters are written around this. Acts chapter 15 deals with the first council the church had to wrestle over this issue. And then you have an entire book in your New Testament that specifically is all about this issue, the book of Galatians. Six chapters devoted to the fact that you are saved by faith alone apart from your ceremonial tradition. And so this is a significant deal. So let's dive in, shall we? 
Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 9. We've got four verses to cover this week. That's it. Four verses. Start in verse 9. Notice Paul's going to ask a question as he's done all throughout this text. He says, is this blessing? Now, what is the blessing he's speaking about? He's quoting the blessing that we saw in the verses that just preceded this, verse 7 and 8, when he quoted David from Psalm 32 that said, blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not credit his sin in his account. You are blessed if you have been forgiven by God apart from your works, but rather because you put your faith in the promise of God. That's what David said. That's what Paul quotes. So Paul now says, is this blessing of salvation by faith alone? Is it only for the circumcised, meaning the Jew? Or is it also available for the uncircumcised, the non-Jew, the Gentile? In other words, can you be uncircumcised and be saved? Or must you be circumcised in order to be saved? Once again, Paul's going to say, we're going to have to go all the way back to the forefather of the faith to try to get this right. Just like we saw last week, if you want to understand constitutional truth, you're going to have to go all the way back to Washington and Hamilton and Madison. You're going to have to find out what they meant in what they said. In the same way, Paul says, if you want to understand, is a Jew saved by circumcision, by ceremonial law, you're going to have to go all the way back to Abraham. What does he have to say on this? And notice what he says here. Whatever is true of Abraham is going to be true of us. And he says concerning this at the end of verse 9, for we say, whenever you see that plural, we, Paul's affirming an apostolic creed. They've already made a ruling on this in Acts 15. So he's just repeating it. For we say that faith was credited to Abraham's account as righteousness. It was his faith that credited to him righteousness, not his works. We say that. How then was it credited to him? Was it before or after Abraham had been circumcised? And then he says, and I want you to underline the last part of verse 10, this one sentence is the key for this text. It was not after. It was before he was circumcised. When was Abraham saved? Do you all remember what chapter? Genesis chapter 15 is when Abraham believed the promise of God and he was credited with righteousness. He was saved in Genesis 15. When was Abraham circumcised? Genesis 17. 13 years after he was saved. So he was saved apart from circumcision. Now, understanding that right here, the point is that if salvation comes by circumcision, if you have to undergo ceremonial tradition of being circumcised on the eighth day in order to be part of the covenant people of God, to be saved, if that is true, if salvation comes by circumcision, then somebody better tell Abraham. Because that brother was saved when he was an uncircumcised Gentile. Abraham, from the Ur of Chaldeans, a Gentile territory, was saved before he was circumcised, not after. So the question then arises, if that is true, if the father of the faith did not need to be circumcised in order to be saved, that just faith alone and the promise of God is what saved him, then what was the point of circumcision? 
Why do we have circumcision? Why would a Jew have circumcision still? Why would we have certain ordinances that we would go through after our salvation? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Verse 11, two reasons. Two reasons. And these will not only apply to circumcision for the Jew in this day, but this will apply in our day to baptism, communion, and any other rites of passage we may go through that we may enjoy as believers. Listen to what he says in verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. I want you to circle two words right there. Sign and seal. What is the purpose of a ceremonial rite of passage that God has given after one has already put their faith in the promise of God and been saved? Two reasons, a sign and a seal. This is Paul's definition of what any religious ordinance or ceremony is for. First of all, let's look at it from the level of a sign. What is a sign? A sign is an external expression of an internal reality. We see these all day, every day. Anytime you drive down 35, you're looking at billboards, you're looking at signs. Signs are expressing something that is not the something. Uh, When my family does a road trip and we're heading down 35, and the sign says 35 miles to Bucky's, that's a glorious sign for us right there. And I'm going to see that sign. Now, you understand, that sign is not the destination. That sign is pointing me to the destination, which is a bag of beaver nuggets waiting for me when I get there. That is the destination. It is only a sign that is pointing me to that destination. Likewise, commonly you'll hear, and it's so true, my wedding ring is a sign. It is a sign to everyone else that I have pledged my life to another, that, and only that other, exclusively. It is a sign. This ring is not my marriage. You know what it does? It signifies. It signifies. It signals. It signals something about a true reality that this is simply pointing to. Now, question, if I take this ring off, am I still married? God help me, I better be. Yes, I am. So why put it on? Why even go through the trouble to have this sign if it is not the reality? If you're married either way, why wear a sign for it? Why? Two reasons. Because one, I want to remind myself daily of the covenant that I am in of oneness to my wife. I want something that is a token that I can look at every day when my heart wants to wander and remind myself of the covenant that I had entered into. And that fills joy in my heart. And it is a beautiful thing to look down at my left hand every day and rehearse that covenantal promise to myself. But it also serves as a testimonial witness to all y'all that I have pledged myself to another. And so it is a sign in that regard. But let me ask you this question. Can you wear a wedding ring and still have a jacked up marriage? Oh yeah, you can. Absolutely. Can you put on a ring that is a sign to everybody, I'm married, but not live in accordance to what that sign is? Absolutely. We counsel those broken marriages all the time of folks who want to go trade their covenant for something cheaper even though they wear the sign that they signify as they are in a oneness covenantal relationship. Y'all, in that same way, circumcision 
was a sign. That's all it was. It was a sign that said, this is what I have put my trust in. This is what God has promised me. This is what has credited my righteousness. And I am wearing this as a sign in circumcision is what that would have been. That is the flesh has been rolled back. I am no longer identified by the fallenness of this world, but the righteousness that comes through God and his promise in Messiah. Let me ask you this question. Was it possible for a Jew who was circumcised on the eighth day to not truly belong to God? Absolutely. Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 9, not all Israel is Israel. Paul's going to tell us later on in this passage, a Jew isn't one who is merely born of or marked off by the flesh, but rather one who, like Abraham, was made righteous by faith, of which circumcision was simply signifying about that reality. Let me ask you this question. Do we have a sign on this side of the cross? As the church of Jesus Christ, do we have a sign that signifies the salvation that we have received by faith in Jesus Christ? Yes, in a general sense, there's lots of signs that could outwardly tell people what you believe in. You could go down to your local Lifeway Christian store and grab some necklaces and some stickers and some really cheesy t-shirts. You can go grab all that stuff and it can indicate externally what the internal belief is that you hold and are clinging to. But biblically speaking, there are actually two signs that the Lord Jesus Christ himself ordained that we would carry as the church. That of baptism and that of communion are two major ordinances ordained by Jesus Christ himself that he said would serve as a sign of our faith in him. Let's take baptism for a moment here. Baptism, what is baptism? Baptism is a one-time signification to all men that you and I have died, been buried, and raised up to new life with Jesus Christ. It is a public statement of our identification of faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. As Paul said in Galatians 2, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. It is a public statement declaring that. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you be baptized and still be unregenerate in your heart and unsaved? Is it possible? Absolutely. We see it in Scripture. Acts chapter 8, Simon the magician wanted to follow Jesus, so he was baptized by one of the church deacons, Philip himself. And so everything seemed legit until Peter comes along afterwards and asks a few more questions and finds out that this brother wasn't baptized because of faith in Jesus Christ. He simply wanted to gain the power and the influence and the monetary gain that could be gained by following Jesus as he perceived it to be. And you know what Peter said to this guy who was already baptized? I see that you are still in the gall of bitterness and your own iniquity. May your silver perish with you. Whoa. Peter just said, this brother ain't a believer, but yet he had been baptized. And in many ways, y'all, in the last 20-something years of my life of vocational ministry, I have baptized a number of men and women who proverbially walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, made a confession, were eager to jump into the waters only in time to discern that that was never really a true indication of their, the state of their heart. There was other false motivations, other coercions that brought them to that moment other than true faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. 
And so it is possible to be baptized and not be saved. But is it possible to be saved and not baptized? The answer is yes. See also the thief on the cross. The most classic example, right? Puts his trust in Jesus on the cross, was never baptized. However, is that the norm? Is that the expectation? No. I mean, unless you happen to be tied up on a cross and you can't get around to it, it has been expected of you, I would say commissioned of us by Jesus Christ that in accordance with our faith, we would go testify to that through the ordinance of baptism. And so you and I are called. It's possibly a Christian not be baptized, though you'll be a disobedient Christian, but nonetheless, you can as well. It is not your baptism that saves you. Baptism is signifying your salvation. How about communion? What is communion? Communion or the Lord's Supper is is not just a one-time act. It's actually an ongoing act that is repeated. A physical sign that is done in remembrance of the Lord's substitutionary death for us. It's meant to be a public statement demonstrating that we have a continual abiding communion with Jesus Christ that has been made possible through his broken body and his shed blood on the cross that has brought about the forgiveness of sins and entered us into relationship with him. And communion does a number of things. And I know for a lot of folks, if you're like me, when I first got saved and went to the church, I thought communion was weird. I was like, what, what are we doing? And even for probably the next 10 years of my Christian faith, I wasn't always quite sure, what should I be doing in communion? Like, what's, what am I supposed to be thinking about? What is it? You need to know this. Biblically speaking, there's a number of things that communion is for. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us through the words of Christ that first and foremost, it is to be a regular remembrance and rehearsal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Twice, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. To do something in remembrance is a memory. It's a memorial. What do we do at memorials? We are memorializing. We are remembering a true historical fact that happened that bore weight on our lives. And that is what we are doing in communion. We are looking back for us on this side of the cross. We are looking back to an actual historical event of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us so that we could be forgiven. And we're remembering that when we take these elements, we're remembering that our our sin demanded a substitute and it couldn't be us. So God came through Jesus Christ and his broken body was the substitutionary lamb given for us. And his blood shed on that cross was the blood of a new covenant that forgave our sin, that cleansed us, that covered our sin. And by faith in it gives us the righteousness of Christ. And we are remembering that. Because again, I, every single day, experience the wandering. It's like the old hymn, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. I'm so drawn towards the lesser things. I'm so prone to begin convincing myself and listening to lies that God's not happy with me, that there's... There's merit that I need to earn in his sight. And what communion does becomes a visible sign to remind me of what I know is true. That my merit is not earned by my own performance. It was given through the performance of Jesus Christ as a gift. So Shea Sumlin, rest in it. And I rehearse that gospel. But it does more than that as well. Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 11, it's an opportunity for us to examine ourselves. Because that it is a sign, a sign is indicating an inward reality. Is that the inward reality? As I take this, am I resting in the grace of the Lord? 
Am I drifting in areas? Is there areas in my life where there is ongoing unrepentant sin that is making a mockery out of the reality of what Christ has come to give me so that I might in that moment repent and turn back to that grace and be restored and be in fellowship and communion with my Lord? And so we do this corporately together. Again, not just as individuals, but as a body we are doing this. And then also, I think one of the most beautiful things about communion is in Matthew chapter or Mark chapter 14, when Jesus is having this last supper, inaugurating this ordinance with his disciples, he says, listen, I'm having this with you right now, and then I'm going to go away, and the next time I'm going to have with this with you, this meal, is going to be in the kingdom. Meaning that in many ways, communion is an opportunity for us to not just look back at what Christ has done, but to look ahead and to know that there is a day coming when we will no longer take this sign by faith, we'll get to enjoy it in the full substance of sight in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so we take our hearts and we, we project them forward to the promise that what God has done, he will complete. And we rest in that. There are a number of ways in which we approach communion to that degree. But let me ask you this. Can you participate in communion and not be saved? Absolutely. Even though we try hard every week to try to proverbially fence the table around here and plead that communion is for believers, because if it is an external sign and you haven't put your trust in Jesus, then you're taking the sign in vain. You're reminding yourself of something that isn't internally true. And so, and so we want to guard that as best that we can. But inevitably, there are unsaved people in our gatherings every week who will take communion simply because that's just what I've historically done in tradition and churches, and so I should take it. Or I should take it because I believe that somehow this is earning some spiritual merit to my account. And both of those are false motivations, all while we can be living in total rebellion to God. And Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11, when we do this, we are taking the sign in an unworthy manner. They don't correlate. They don't, they don't correlate here. They don't parallel. And so, yes, we can do that. Can you also be saved and not participate in communion? Yes. There are seasons and times where maybe you just can't. We just went through a seven-month period where we couldn't gather as a church. And so though many were trying to take individually at home, we didn't take it in the spirit of what was meant in the gathering as often as we come together. There are times where the elements may not be available times, but those are exceptions. And the truth is, is that we are not to reject that ordinance. We are to embrace that ordinance as given to us by Jesus Christ. So at the end of the day, these ordinances, baptism and communion, they are signs external billboards that are pointing us to an internal reality. But what about a seal? Because Paul called circumcision a seal. What does that mean? Y'all know what a seal is? A seal is a stamp of certification. In the ancient times, when a noble dignitary, a ruler, or a king wanted to send out a decree, do you remember how he rolled that scroll up and what he did? He took his what? His signet ring, his signet ring, that had the crest of his kingdom, his authority, and he dipped that in hot wax and sealed that decree. And what that was doing was two things. Number one, that was certifying that this decree is from the king and nobody else. It's got his crest on it, his seal. Second, it was ensuring that that letter, that decree, would make it to its intended destination without being tampered with. If that seal was broken, you had to discard it. It was messed with. But as long as that seal was sealed, then it was from the king, and it was meant to make it to its intended destination. 
and without anybody tampering with it. That's, by the way, why in the U.S. you don't tamper with U.S. mail. Now, you can, sadly, in our country, you can mess with another person's spouse and not be prosecuted for that, but you can't mess with mail because that mail, it is a federal offense to do so because once that stamp, when that seal is put on that letter, it is now federal property until the time that it reaches its intended destination in which the proper owner can then open that mail. But you can't make up your own seal. We can't print our own stamps of our own choosing. We have to print the ones that are issued to us by our federal head. Let me ask this question. Do we as Christians have a seal that seals or certifies our faith in Jesus Christ? Yes, we do. His name is the Holy Spirit. The third member of our federal head where after our salvation is received by faith in Christ alone, God himself places his spirit to dwell within us permanently as a promise and a down payment that what God has started, God will finish. And you see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Listen to these words. In him, in Jesus... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him. Notice that's what comes first. Then you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And what is that seal for? He is the guarantee of our inheritance. For what purpose? Until we arrive at our destination until we acquire possession of the ultimate finality of that salvation to the presence of his glory. The Holy Spirit is God's seal. Salvation came by faith in Jesus Christ. After salvation, at the time of salvation, the Spirit is placed as a seal on our life, a down payment, guaranteeing this salvation is from the King and it will arrive at the intended destination. Now, that being said, likewise, circumcision was a seal, a certification from God to Abraham that validated his faith, which preceded it, a promise that God would provide through Abraham's seed, a Messiah who would come. That is, by the way, why God chose to put the sign of his covenant, the seal of his covenant on the male organ, because that is through whom the seed would come that would bring about the Messiah who would come and bring the righteousness that Abraham could not earn, and neither of us. Abraham, this is God saying to Abraham, you may stumble and fall, the world may crumble around you, but when you see this physical seal, it is a reminder that I have promised, but what I have promised for you will never fail. Your righteousness in Christ will come. And Abraham believed and he was saved. Again, in Genesis 15, and then 13 years later, that sign and seal was put on him as a testimony to that promise. Now, did God deliver on that promise for Abraham? Oh, you better believe he did. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes, their amen in him, in Jesus. So what's the point of all of this, of providing a a circumcision to Abraham as a sign and a seal after he had placed his faith in the promise. Here's the point. Verse 11, at the end of verse 11, 
The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be credited to them as well. He's speaking primarily about the Gentile right there. The point was to show through Abraham that anybody could come. Even if they weren't a Jew, they could come and they could believe in Jesus and be saved even if they'd never been circumcised. Let me tell you, men today are circumcised for hygienic reasons. That's a good thing. But if it weren't, if we weren't circumcised for hygienic reasons, could Abraham still be our father? Absolutely, because that's how Abraham was saved, apart from ceremonial tradition, by faith alone. Now remember, though, one last thing here. What about the Jew again? That's to the Gentile. It was a common belief in Israel that the Jew, uh, if he was just born a Jew by physical lineage, physical lineage, and if he was circumcised on the eighth day, then he was automatically grafted in to the promise of God, was guaranteed that salvation. Now notice how Paul concludes in verse 12, though, when he says, to make, now turning towards the Jew, it was also to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The reason why Abraham was saved the way he was was not only so that Gentiles could understand it's by faith alone, but that the Jew would understand that even as precious as your circumcision is, it's still not your salvation. It must come by faith alone. That's huge right there. That the true Jew is not one who is born merely of the flesh. It is the one who is born in the footsteps of Abraham, which is by faith Saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by his grace alone. And if that is how he is saved, that is how everybody else will be saved as well. This is good news to us, church, that if you are hanging on right now, and you need to hear this, if you are hanging on, if, if asked the question, how are you saved, and your response is merely appear, uh, appealing to Christian heritage or behavior modification or comparative righteousness or some ceremonial rite of passage that you went through, you need to hear this. Those are not your salvation. They may evidence your salvation, but they are not your salvation. Your response to that question, biblically speaking, is one thing. It is nothing that I have done. It is the merit that has come through what Christ and Christ alone has done for me on the cross. And I have simply taken my trust that was formerly in me, and I've put it in him. Hook, line, sinker, the whole way through. It is him and him alone. That is who my boast is in. And this is a significant deal. You need to know, going all the way back to the Reformation, one of the most fascinating stories and tragedies within the Reformation that I first learned about was a four-year stretch that occurred in England from 1555 to 1558. It is under the reign of Queen Mary, also known as Bloody Mary. And in that four-year stretch, Mary had 288 men, women, and children put to death. Many of them were burned at the stake. And do you know what the number one reason is why most of those 288 men, women, and children died on the stake? Because they would not recant their position that salvation was by faith alone. And the number one reason 
that led to that execution was over the issue of communion. They would not hold to the Orthodox Catholic view that in the communion, known as the Eucharist, that that was indeed the physical body of Jesus that had transformed and the physical blood of Jesus that had transformed and that by consuming the physical flesh and blood of Jesus, a meritous work was adding imputation to their account. They would not hold to that. They rejected that and thus they were burned at the stake because of that. Have you ever considered the fact that your view of communion could lead to your own death and martyrdom? That's how significant of an issue that they felt it was because that's how significant of an issue the Apostle Paul treats it to be. That if you are putting your trust in anything other than faith in Jesus Christ, Paul will say in the book of Galatians chapter 1, you have bought into another gospel, which is no gospel at all. And that gospel, that false gospel, leads to your own judgment and death, not to life. Life comes in the same way that it did for Abraham, by faith alone. Amen? Now, let me tell you this. We haven't done a baptism in this room in almost 10 months. Now, it doesn't mean baptisms haven't been happening. They've been happening in pools, and I did my daughter's baptism in, hot, in a hot tub back in March. It's all we could do, right? And we're just enjoying that. It's a beautiful gift, but at the same time, how I long. We just finished up our most recent round of baptism classes and family baptism classes, and so in the coming weeks here, we're going to have some fresh waters being stirred up in this mug, and I'm excited for us to see that. I'm excited for us to relish in that, not because anything salvific is happening in those waters, but because it's already happened, because they put their faith in Jesus, and they're going to stand up here in a few weeks, and they're going to testify, and we're going to celebrate and be reminded of that gospel. In the meantime, though, you know what we do get to do? Today, we get to celebrate communion together. And so when you came into this room, you should have received one of these little communion packets. And I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and make their way up here as we prepare our hearts for this. And again, as I mentioned earlier, what we are about to do is just a sign. It's just a sign. It is a giant billboard in this room right now pointing all of us to where our true reality lies in faith in Jesus Christ. And we get to remember visually, visibly, viscerally, we get to remember in this moment through an, uh, an ordinance that Christ ordained for us that will help us remember and rehearse the gospel. And Paul said these words, and I just want to remind us again, as I did earlier, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've yet to put your faith in Christ, We'd ask you to hold off on this, not because we're trying to be cruel or partial in this degree, but simply to say, because you will be partaking in a sign that does not point to a reality in your life. And none of us want to walk in that kind of blatant hypocrisy. We want this sign to simply be pointing to the evidence that already exists, that you have put your trust in Jesus. If you have not done that, can I just let you know, God's grace is available for you today, right now. He has offered his son, Jesus Christ, for you so that you don't have to go through this life trying to merit the favor of God and futility. It has already been merited for you through Jesus. And you can take your trust and put it in him and rest in him. And when that happens, you have the promise that you are saved and you will be indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God who will carry you through all the way to the end. And in the meantime, then you can participate in an ordinance like this that cherishes and relishes in the truth of what you have done. 
to everyone else who has done that, then we want the opportunity to remember what Paul instructed us that Jesus ordained for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul said, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, one of many elements in that meal, and then after he had broken the bread and given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. And then we're to take this remembrance of him. There's that word remembrance again. What are we remembering? We're remembering that our sin was real. Our sin alienated us from God. Our sin demanded death. And we needed, in order to be saved, a substitute. It couldn't be another human who died for us in sinful tents like we are. We needed somebody who was perfectly man and perfectly God. And God gave us that in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to be the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so when we hold up this bread and we eat of this bread, we are reminding ourselves it is Jesus' body that served as the substitution for the lamb on that cross, demanding, deserving that death that we deserve. He took it for us. And so church, we remember that substitute in Jesus to him. Paul said in the same way, Jesus took the cup after that supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. New covenant. Remember the old covenant was if you obeyed, then you're blessed. If you disobeyed, then you're cursed. Well, we were always cursed. So we're always disobeyed. But God inaugurated a new covenant in which one would perform in your place on your behalf. Jesus Christ. He lived the life that you could not live and he shed his blood on that cross to cover your sin and institute a new covenant. It says, no matter how much you fail, my blood is sufficient for you. And he said, take this drink in remembrance of that new covenant. So church, we drink to the forgiveness that we have received through the blood of Jesus Christ that has merited us our righteousness. To Christ's blood we drink. said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reality through the life of Abraham, that it is faith and faith alone in the promise of God through Messiah, through Jesus Christ, that we are saved apart from works, apart from ceremonial tradition. Oh God, help us to remember that. Help us to cherish that. Help us to abide in that, that your grace is sufficient for us. We don't have to work for your approval. We don't have to merit your favor because it's already been given in Jesus Christ. Oh, may we rest and live a life in response to that of gratitude and worship and joy and obedience that is a delight, not just a duty. And so, God, we ask this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.